Welcome to My Life Chassidus Supplied, episode 293. A good chedesh, we're going into the month of Rishchedesh Shvat. So a very blessed month to all of you and to all of us. It's a special month, especially for Chassidim, being that this year Yud Shvat in 10 days from now will be Shivim Shona, the beginning of the 70th year from when the Rebbe assumed leadership right after the Histalkus, the passing of the Friedrich Rebbe, Bezorach HaShemesh, Uboah HaShemesh. As the sun sets, the sun rises. In the Rebbe's own words that he described the passing from the Nesias, from the Rebbe Rashab to the Friedrich Rebbe. So this happened in Yud Shvat, Tavshin Yud. And of course, we're honoring that and celebrating that. It's such a vital day and a vital year, 70th anniversary. And we've been doing it in the past few weeks, and we'll be doing some more today in this program. I want to begin with the dedication and honor that this program is dedicated in honor of Gail Wisner, the Chain family, and for the safe and speedy return of Chaim Peretz ben Gita Freide, dedicated by Esther Mulroy, whose birthday as well is this week. So happy birthday. We also just announced last week the Sixth annual My Life is Applied essay contest, and this year we've added a new track, a creative and artistic track, which I'm also going to be speaking about. But before we get into that and to the fascinating questions of this week's uh, program, I want to say that uh, please look forward to a surprise announcement about how we're going to do a special event and program around Yud Shvat which is, as I said, next Wednesday, a week from Wednesday. And um, some interesting things that I am sure that all of us will appreciate. And not just as a celebration, but actually a declaration of re-embracing the revolution that the Rebbe initiated on Yud which began 70 years ago. And we'll be talking about that in specific detail and things, most importantly, that we can do because at the end of the day, it's all action. It's not theory. What can you and I and each one of us do? And we'll be speaking about that and many different other, as I said, surprises that we'll be announcing as the days roll by. So one of the things that, uh, and I'll just, I've already spoken some suggestions last week and two weeks ago about preparing for the 70th, beginning of the 70th anniversary. And remember, this is just the beginning. The entire year is the 70th year, so I look forward to many different interesting things that we'll be doing to honor that, and again, always bringing it down to action in ways that we can be part of this revolution and we can make a difference and make a mark and actually fulfill and realize the mission for which we are here in this world, which is to bring the Shekhinah, the words of the Rebbe in Basilegani Tovshin Yudalov said 69 years ago, when he assumed formally the leadership, the Rebbe said that our generation, the seventh generation, is to bring the Shekhinah, the divine presence, from heaven, from the lowest heaven to earth itself. The total fusion of matter and spirit, the purpose for which all existence was created from the beginning of time. So it's indeed something exciting, and we are here to not just live through it, but to be part of the unfolding drama, the unfolding narrative of history itself and bringing it to that powerful place, that's the powerful place, the fulfillment of something that everybody has been waiting for from the beginning of time. So I thought, as everything is divine prowess, this program began around between Chavdala Tevis and Yud Shvat, 
That's when we began the first program seven years ago. The essay contest essentially designated, now you'll ask me, what, what do I mean between? Because one year it was closer to Chavdal Tevis, this was the Yortzei Da'estalkus and the Hilula of the Alter Rebbe, and Yutzvat is just a few days after that, another uh, two weeks afterwards. So the contest is associated with these days. So I thought of divine providence. What better way to honor and to celebrate and to bring into action the Rebbe's vision, which of course is the vision of all the Rabbeim, all the seven Rabbeim, and the vision of all Rebbes and all leaders from the beginning of time, Moshe Rabbeinu, all the way going from the beginning of history itself, the vision of manifesting and actualizing and making practical, applying, Teira in general, Achsidus in particular, which is Primis HaTeira, in the words of Mashiach to the Baal Shem Tov, taking the wellsprings and bringing them Chutzah. Chutzah means in space, in time, but also in spirit. The idea of bringing it to, into a language and into a paradigm and a, plat- and a platforms that everybody can access it. Because when we speak about the future, the Geula, and the near future, we should say, the immediate future, what, how is it described by Isaiah, Yeshaya, the prophet? There will be no more There will be no more evil and no more destruction because the entire world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Divine knowledge. That means entire earth. Every human being, in the words of the Rambam, Maimonides, at the end of his Sefer Mishnah Teda, the business of the world will be nothing but to know God. That doesn't mean everyone will be theologians. It will mean that in everything we do, it will be clear it's a means for divine expression, for spiritual, for spiritual expression. So whatever you see in the world, whether it comes down to a minuscule little plant, or for the birds in the sky, or whatever it is, we will see the hand inside the glove, which today is concealed. So how do we prepare for that? By living our lives that way. By studying and aligning ourselves with such a vision. Recognizing that your body is a vehicle for your soul. So just as the entire universe will be seen, the hand inside the glove, we will see the hand within our glove, within our body, within our garment, we will see the soul shining through. And essentially, energy and matter will be fused as one. So what better way to prepare for that, among many different ways, and I'm sure there are many ways, and people all over the world are preparing, is to actually write an essay or produce a creative, artistic way of expressing Hasidic thought. Hasidus is this Mola Aris Deya Sashem. It's understanding, it's godliness, it's about godliness, it's about how God created the universe, and expressing it in a way that we apply an idea of chassidus to a contemporary life challenge or issue is, of course, the essence of the essay contest. But now that we've expanded it, we have other ways to express it. It can also express it through photography, through visual arts, through music, through poetry, through a video presentation. And if you go to chassidusapplied.com slash contest, you'll see all the guidelines and all the rules. But I want to take it even further practical suggestion to parents and educators in particular. But this is really not limited to them. It's to all of us. I've received much, much feedback now and over the years of how much 
people who were involved in this contest, how it affected their lives, even to the point of, and not being overdramatic, transforming people's lives. I am a different person, individuals told me. A mother, a father told me that when we were involved with our children in doing this, it literally transformed our homes. So here's my suggestion. It's a suggestion. Yes, it is a way of, of, a way of um, disseminating and publicizing the contest, but I think it's a great suggestion. And I'll soon tell you my reasons behind it after I explain the suggestion. And that is, simply, whether you're a parent of children, and obviously you have to know which age children, but children that are capable of doing this, why don't you challenge them and incentivize them, besides the $10,000 prize or the $1,000 artistic prize? Incentivize them. Say, what are you dealing with? Let's deal with a challenge. One child may say, there's bullying going on in my classroom. Others may say, I'm bored. There's all kinds of different things people and children go through, and teenagers especially. Identify something and say, you know what? Why don't we work on together? Since we're taught that Teda is Melosh and Teda is offers us a directive in life. It's a blueprint for life. And since we're also looking at chassidus as an answer to all our issues, I will help you. Let's find some sources, a from the Rebbe, from the Friedrich Rebbe, a Maimer, a Nigin, a song, something that addresses this issue. Tell me what you think will take place. The child. And the same thing I say to educators and the students. You have a class. You're teaching them a class. What will happen? They'll be excited because it's something that's touching them. You're participating with them, helping them with sources, reviewing. But you want them to do it. You want them to initiate, but you're part of it. It will create an exciting few weeks as you're immersed and involved with it. And this I say not as a guess or speculation, conjecture, because I've heard that. Be talking about it by the table. Other siblings will weigh in. Oh, what better way? What did the Rebbe give us this for? is to make it real, to address real issues in our lives, apply it to our personal lives. This is the best way to do it. And guaranteed will have lasting impact. In addition to giving such nachas and pride to the Rebbe. Now, if you do something around Basilegani, the Maimer itself, and derive lessons from that, Mateva Manoim, even better. Perhaps we'll even add extra credit points for that. But it doesn't have to be exclusively to that Maimer. But that Maimer, of course, is the Maimer that the Rebbe said, Friedrich Rebbe, last Maimer that was published by the Friedrich Rebbe, and the Rebbe began that Maimer, Basilegani Tovshin Yudalef, and then every year afterwards would explain one of the 20 chapters, and then went through a second cycle and the third cycle. So this is a practical suggestion. As I said, teachers and students as well. You're teaching a class anyway, a class in Teir and Make an assignment. The prize will come from us. You don't have to spend any money. It'll be a $10,000 first prize, $3,600 second prize, a $1,000 third prize, and a special student prize that only a student will win. They can also win the top prize. Or if somebody wants to do it through artistic expression, so we now have allowed that as well. I find this to be an easy, yes, it takes work, but it's enjoyable work, a labor of love, of way of honoring and actually implementing what the Rebbe told us to do. To make Elokuz, godliness, real in our lives. To make Siddhis real in our lives. Or in the words of the Rebbe, to draw down godliness in this world. Take an issue of this world and address it with a godly approach, which is what Siddhis teaches. This is the essence of the contest. Now, let me add this. I mentioned this in the past. 
When I first thought of the idea, which was just, you know, Hashgacha Pratis, it was a year after we were doing My Life, the program, the weekly program. And my office said, so how do we honor the first anniversary? It was much more successful than we expected. More questions came in. The listenership was growing and continues to grow. It was quite uh, very touching to see and it was very powerful. So I don't know, something came to me. I said, the essay contest idea. I don't even remember what sparked it, but you know how ideas, they fly from anywhere. Okay, we passed it around, and not everybody was so excited. What did I do? I decided, you know what, let me write up the, the purpose of the contest, what its objectives are, and its benefits. And I sent it to one of our uh, powerful sponsors, one of our uh, contributors, donors. And I, I, I spelled out how much we would need. We would need for the prizes, for some administration, other work. There was no income from it. And to my, not to my surprise, but very quickly, excellent idea, I'm committing to it. And that is the Moromim Foundation and my dear friend, Rabbi Yitzchok Mirashvili from Herzliya in Israel, and continue to commit. It. It's only grown, so we need even more money than we're getting. So if anybody's interested in contributing to this, it's a great cause. All you got to do is contact me directly if you wish, or you can go online to mychsidasupply.com uh, and donate. But that's an aside. Let me get back to the topic. Okay, so we launched the contest. Within a week or two, I get a, an email from a friend. He says, look at this letter from the Rebbe. Volume 10, Nigus Kedish, page 238-239. It's a letter dated Yutches Tevis, the 18th of Tevis, Tovshin Tezvov. That was the equivalent of 1955. A letter many years ago. Something immediately struck me, and I said to myself, where do I know that date from? I write an email to my office, and I say, can you, can you tell me, send me the email that I first sent to everybody? What day was it? Would you believe? It was Yudches Tevis Tovshin Ayin Hei. Fifty years to the day when the Rebbe wrote that letter. Where he says these words, that we know that to really get students involved, it's a letter to a woman educator. We know that to get students really involved is that they should make presentations. Not just be taught, but they should initiate a presentation. Then the Rebbe continues, since Yud Shvar is coming, that's what he says, he suggests that the students should write a masa, an essay, in honor of Yud Shvat, describing my father-in-law, the Friedrich Rebbe's work, and his contributions. I couldn't believe it. I called up the principals of the, of the women's school here in uh, New York. I said, does anyone know about this letter? It's a printed letter. Anyone ever did anything like this? No. So I said to myself, oh, Mamasha directive of the Rebbe. That takes a whole different dimension. It was a good suggestion, and I, we all thought it was a good suggestion, and it did work out. So if you need a direct hirah, the covered yud shvat. And that was Tovshin Tezvov. Now we're in Tovshin Pei. That was five years after Tovshin Yud. Now we're 70 years after. So you have that additional reason, and perhaps the main reason, to actually do this. I'm not suggesting it's, it's going to be absolutely easy, but it's a work that will only give you more dividends than what you'll invest in it. And I say this to everyone that's listening to this, and please share it with others. I think it's a tremendous opportunity and, uh, and we're excited to be part of it, but it can't happen without you. And especially for educators and parents. To me, it's a no-brainer. 
Who doesn't want their children to be excited, their students to be excited about Chassidus, about the Rebbe, about the mission? And you can write about that too, the mission itself, the Deirashvi, what better topic? But personalize it. Make it real, not just a theory, an idea, an analysis. Apply it. And use creative, all your creative juices and all your creative skills. As I said again, go to chassidusapply.com slash contest for all the details, all the rules and guidelines. As always, follow them. After you finish whatever you're doing, just go through the guidelines, make sure, check it off like a checklist. I did this, 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 and this. Show it to another person and guarantee it'll heighten your chances of actually winning. But as I always say, everybody's a winner. The mere fact that you do this will be something that will last the rest of your life. Ask people who've done it. Ask past year's winners. And um, that's how I feel is one of the great ways to, especially this year, the Shivim Shana 70th year of the Rebbe's Nesiyah's leadership, to contribute, not just contribute, but to shine and to really bring Chassidus alive, alive in our personal lives, which is, of course, the entire objective of this program. So, with that said, uh, the deadline for the contest, I should mention, is February 23rd, or the equivalent Chof Ches Shvat. So essentially a month from now. A good four weeks. Okay. With that, let us go to a question regarding the Deira Shvi, which we spoke about last week in episode 292, but another question came in. Then I'll talk about Rishchei Deshvat and Boy. And then uh, a bunch of interesting and also some unfortunate questions that we have to address as part of Chassidus addressing the entire spectrum of life, sometimes pleasant, sometimes not just pleasant things. But Chassidus always has what to say, as the Torah in general has what to say to us, direction, guidance, strength, and hope. So the question about uh, the connected to Deir Ashvi, Deir Ashvi, again, remember, is the day the Rebbe described this generation when he assumed formally the leadership, Yud Shvat Tovshin Yud Aleph, 1951. And he referred to us, the generation, the seventh from the Alter Rebbe. Alter Rebbe was the first Miyasid, the founder of Chassidus Chabad, Mitla Rebbe's generation two, the Tzamech Tzedek generation three, Rebbe Marash four, generation four, Rebbe Rashab generation five, Friedrich Rebbe generation six, and the Rebbe, our generation, generation seven. And compared it, equated it with the seventh generation from Avram Avinu, based on the Medrash, in the beginning of Basilegani, cited from Shira Shirim Rabba, that Avram was the first to reverse the process that had deteriorated and toxified existence through the iniquities and the wandering away and the betrayal of our destiny, otherwise called an Aveda, a disalignment. Avram reversed the process and returned the Shekhinah, the divine prevalent, the divine presence to the seventh heaven and then Yitzchak to the sixth, and the next generations, no lower, lower, until Moshe Rabbeinu, the seventh, from Avram Avinu, from Abraham, of course received the Torah at Sinai, after Yitzchak Mitzrayim, and then built the Mishkin V'Shachanti B'Seicham, on this earth, not a Mishkin in heaven, not a tabernacle, a temple in heaven, a sanctuary in heaven, a sanctuary made from gold, silver, copper, material items, in which God would reside and dwell among us, and within us. Every man and woman, every human being, every Jew, every child, and so on. Okay, so the Rebbe equated the two. 
So among the different expressions that Rebbe used, one was the last that we are the last generation of Golas, hence, and the first of the Gula. That's the Deir Ashvi, concluding the process that began with Alter Rebbe, which began even longer before that, and concluding. So here's the question someone asked. Was the Rebbe's statement that we are the last generation of Golas and the first generation of Gula just a bracha and a wish? Or was there more to it? Being that almost all of the people who were at that Fabringen have passed on. So the Rebbe made it very clear. It's a double question. That first of all, even those that passed on, that doesn't mean they don't have children and grandchildren who are all part of that generation. Just like we talk about the Eden that left Mitzrayim, they all also passed on besides Kolov and Yeshua. And yet, we're told at the end of Chumash, at the end of Pasha Kisavai, when Moshe says, it's 40 years now, and so on, from which we derive that after 40 years, you come to understand fully, to have a heart that understands, and the other expressions there in the Pasuk. And the Rebbe asked the question, I remember it was in Tavshinun, it was the 40th year from Tavshin Yud. The Rebbe said, but many of the people, and most of the people were born later, they weren't there 40 years ago. But they were the children of, and they heard about it, and they were part of the experience. So it continues on even after the people actually left Mitzrayim. As I said, most, indeed, most people didn't enter Eretz Yisrael. That's one Regarding the issue of a bracha or a wish, for sure it's a bracha and a wish, but the Rebbe stated as a mitzvah, when you read the Maimon, Boslegani, he says clearly it's mitzah tulda, which means it has nothing to do with our effort, it has nothing to do with our aveda, with our will, with our choice. As he explains, it's simply because we're born in the Deir Ashvi, whether we like it or not. This is weird birth. We are the Deir Ashvi. The Friedrich Rebbe was the sixth generation. By default, that makes us the seventh generation. And the seventh generation is the generation that brings the Geula. But the Rebbe was much more than a brach and a wish. It was a reality. Why it didn't happen yet, I do not have the answer for that. But the Rebbe did say clearly, put in Tov Shemem Zayin, and then again, Chav Ches Nisan Tov Shemun Aleph, that it's up to us. There's something we must do. It's very clear. So as long as the Geula is not here in its fullest sense of the word, it behooves us to do something. Of course, we beg Rachmanus from God that he should have compassion and just lead us out of Golis. Enough suffering, enough the pain, enough what we went through over the last few thousand years and especially in the last century. But that's one part of it. The second part is we still have to do what we have to do and rise up as adults, rise to the occasion and do what we have to do for this state Ashvi and fulfill and finish the process that Rebbe charged us with. Also, episodes 126 and 216, where I spoke about this a little more at length. And this is a good opportunity. ChassidahSupply.com is our website where you can find the full array of resources, including all the previous episodes archived, a forum where you can submit an anonymous question, completely anonymous. I encourage you to do so. There is a backlog, I have to be honest, but I am really committed to addressing them all. And we'll just keep plugging away, trying to combine some topics, especially if there's something timely, address it in a timely fashion. And of course, you'll also find there the essays. If you want an example of winning essays, or generally great essays, just look at that website in the essay section. You'll see essays from the last five years of the contest. And every week, at the end of this program, 
we go over three more essays in order as they were marked. So we're still reviewing the essays 2019 while the new essay contest has just been launched, as mentioned before. Okay. Make a hefse cotton between partial and partial, as they say. A little break. Not a break in time, just uh, stating that. And let's go now into some important questions. Well, they're all important, but uh, some are more relevant and timely than others. And uh, some questions, I have to always somewhat package them a little because I don't like to read something that can be offensive. But I try to address everything. So we're going to re- now begin with this question. And it's not in any particular order. Is it okay for a tzaddik to say an untruth? Yeah. As way this person wrote, is it okay for a tzaddik to lie? If someone lies, which is an avera, a sin, midvash sheker tirchak, stay away from a lie, does that disqualify them from being a tzaddik? It would seem so, because it's a direct avera. And in relevance to current part to the current parshas, and to Chav Tevis, which was yesterday, the birthday, the 140th birthday of the Rebbe Tzanchana, the Rebbe's mother, which is actually the same year when the Friedrich Rebbe was born, Tafresh Mem, which is 18, 1840, 18, I'm sorry, 18, 18, 18, uh, 18 1880. The Friedrich Rebbe was born, as was Rebbe Tzanchana, Rebbe Tzanchana, the Friedrich Rebbe in Yudbeis Tammuz. So in relevance to the current parashat of Chavchas Tevis, here are two points the writer writes about this issue. Why did Meshach Rabbeinu lie to Parai and say, let our people go worship our God with the implication that it was just doing, going to be a short trip of three days and they would come back and continue working as slaves while the truth is they had no intentions. To, they had all the intentions to leave and not come back. Also, regarding Chavchas Tevis, it said when the Rebbe's brother passed away, label, the Rebbe didn't want the bad news to adversely affect his mother. So he forged letters in his brother's name so his mother would think he was still alive. Is this allowed according to a halacha? Okay, good questions. So let's begin. Yes, Sheker is not acceptable. The Friedrich Rebbe once told his, his daughter, the Rebbe Tzinchayim Mushke, that you don't always have to say the truth, but a lie you must never say. That means you don't have to always, you could withhold the truth, but not ever say a lie. So, of course, a lie, according to the is unacceptable. And yet we find a concept in, in, in Chazal that says, Muter, not just Lashanes, which means it's, you're allowed to change something, to preserve peace. And then there's an expression, Muter You're allowed to lie in order to preserve peace. We know the story with Aaron Havinu, Aaron Hakain, Godel, Aaron that one of the reasons that all the Jewish people, it says, the men and women mourned after him, Vayufko kol Yisrael, not just called Bnei Yisrael, not just the children, the boys, the males, was because that's what Adam did. He was a man among the people and he would make Sholem. Like the Mishnah says, Have a mitamid of Sholem, be from the students of Adam, Eyev Sholem, Vareid of Sholem, love peace, pursue peace. What would he do, says the Medrash? He would go, when he saw two people who had, were in somewhat of a quarrel, he would go to each one of them separately and say, you know the person you're this? You know what they said about you? And the other person would assume all the worst. He said, no, they said beautiful things about you. Then he would go to the other one and say the same thing. And it wasn't always exactly that way, but that created goodwill among them, and he created peace. So you'll ask the question, how is that? Because for good cause you could lie. 
Now, obviously, the Rebbe spoke about this in the Mems. I don't have the source right now. I'll look it up and I'll let you know next week. And the Rebbe spoke about it. It means you have to know who's saying it and with what condition. If they're doing it for their own intent and gender. But people who have bitl understand. It's the famous story with the Alter Rebbe. who learned, learned Tera with the Magid's son, Rabbi Vrom Malach. The Alter Rebbe would learn with him Nigla. He would learn with the Alter Rebbe Primis Tera, Chsidis. And they would get so caught up in the Chsidis part. Rabbi Vrom Malach, that's why it was called Malach, he would literally, like his whole spirit, he would like be beyond time and space. And the Alter Rebbe at that moment, when he didn't notice, would turn the clock back so he could have more time learning with him chassidus. So it's for seemingly deceptive. And the Rebbe brings that when it says about that leisignev, which is a form of stealing, which is a form of knevas da, stealing someone's consciousness, like you're doing something that you're stealing their intention is that they continue learning only for a certain period. And here you're fooling them. So there's a hyphen between the loy and signev. Because the Zayar says there's a thing called gneva digdusha. In gedusha, sometimes there's an element of theft. Now, of course, you need to have great discretion who's doing it and what their intention is. So this isn't some license that you could determine, you know what, in this case I could lie because it's a good thing, because it's not going to create machlek. No, no, that's not necessarily the case. MS remains a pure thing. But there are instances. See, mayim gnuvim yim toku, the Alter Rebbe later said. Stolen waters are the sweetest. That was the sweetest moments when I did that, the, the extra time I had to learn Exodus. But this is only by people who are absolutely MS people through and through. For them, this is an effort to do something like that. So my answer is, no, a tzaddik is not shayach talai. Tzaddik is kuli emes. He has no agenda. He has no personal gain. Are there times where there's a concept that they may say something different? It's because, only not because of their gain. It's because that would be what the divine God would want. And that needs to also be looked at very seriously, and you can't just take that as used as a license across the board. Regarding Moshe Rabbeinu with Parei, there the simple answer is, Parei was Hitler. You do whatever it takes, even a lie. This wasn't like, oh, we had a deal, we, are, we worked for you and so on. It was slave labor, and the worst possible way with genocide and murder and so on. And yet, there's still Mepharshim that wonder, how could Moshe have said something even for a moment? So there's explanations for that. One of the explanations is that Moshe did intend to go back, but not to go back as slaves, but to go back and conquer and free and take out everything they wanted from Mitzrayim and not just rush out. There are different explanations, but the point is that never, never has Vashalm is it called a lie. It's called a necessary truth. Sometimes it has to be packaged like that. As far as the Rebbe with the, letter, the letters to his mother, it wasn't, by the way, four long letters. It was a few lines. And I wouldn't call it forgery. That's a very strong word. It was called Kibbut Aim. His mother had gone through what she had gone through, lost her husband, lost a son earlier, Betel Shomber, Doivber, rather. And, the, the, and uh, after what his mother went through, he wanted to just be making life a little easier for her. He didn't have to necessarily... Put, put her in her face. People say she knew anyway, but it was not official. Coming from the Rebbe, a person who never said something untrue, you can imagine, if he did it, you can uh, rest assured that it's in the spirit of Emes. And Emes has different ways. The like Medrash says, 
that when God wanted to create the world, he asked Emes what to do. And Emes said, do not create the world. It's Molesh Karim. It's filled with lies. Al-Medeshikra. God then went to Chesed and asked Chesed, what do you say? Chesed said, yes, create the world because then kindness, there'll be kindness in the world. What did Abish to do? He took Emes, threw it down to the earth, did not follow, and he said, that's what we say, Emes me'eretz titzmach. And the explanation is that Emes is still in this existence. But if you go with pure Emes, and it's not in any way put into garments that can allow the world to exist in its term, on its terms, it will destroy the world. But then when the world does what it has to do, step by step, the Emes that's embedded in earth will emerge. Chesed is the ruling cardinal rule that drives existence. But that doesn't mean, God forbid, that MS is not there. It's just a question how. When we teach children, for example, here's a candy because you learned well. Incentive will take you to a toy store. Why is that not a lie? That's not the reason that you're giving them a toy. Why don't you just tell them, Teda is the most sweetest and most beautiful thing on existence, and that alone is the end. You don't need to have a prize. So the Rebbe explains the story with Malach Machal that we say when we take a, the Friedrich Rebbe was, Take a child into Einfidnish, into school. You throw them candies and you say, Malach Machal threw these candies. The Rebbe said, you're educating a child with a lie. They know it. Later they'll grow up and they'll know it's not Malach Machal. The Rebbe said, no, it is. Because the candies are nostalgical. The sweetness in the candies are evolved from the sweetness in Ruchnius. Malach Machal comes from Chesed. So actually the candies is Malach Machal in the form that children can relate to. Is that a sheker? It's an emes packaged in a language that's like a muscle. When you give an analogy in the teaching, you're not distorting. It's the only way to understand it. Now, of course, case by case, like Yaakov, yes, also dressed up in the garments of Esau to take the brachas from his father. It's another discussion, but it's a similar idea. It's an emes packaged in the levushim of this world, levushim is badr in the language of Chassidus, in order to achieve the intended result, which always has to come from bitl, and not from someone's impersonal in, in interest. It's still a subtle thing, and I understand people can say, well, I'm coming from Bittl. So why don't you check with another person before you uh, entertain this option of doing such a, something that would be called an untruth. The next question is the one that's more painful, but I need to address it because of the issues involved, and broke my heart when I read this letter. If you're in a particularly fragile, sensitive place, maybe viewer discretion advised, um, but uh, nevertheless, this is an important topic. How to address the recent suicides? Hi. I'm sure you heard of the double suicide by two girls in Jerusalem this week, this past week. What do you have to say regarding this matter? To me, this points to a deep problem in our society, our system, but that word is way overused. Young people, myself included, feel no connection and meaning. Our teachers and educators live with their memories, and the memories affects and, the mem- and their memories affects, which cannot be transferred to others. They live by words that are black and white, while the words were spoken by a living, loving person, which by definition isn't black and white. Judaism by us became either plain, bland, empty rules that interest only those void of any interest, or some undefined chassidishkeit possessing no structure or inherent meaning. meaning. For some it works, those that like following rules, those that found some excitement or status, etc., etc. But for most youngsters, used for the effect, no one knows the true numbers. So I'm not suggesting that I know what the numbers are, 
All it takes is a little trigger and this dream world comes crashing down. Be it sexual abuse, not little. It's not a little thing. Emotional abuse, emotional detachment, social difficulties, financial challenges, easily blamed on our system, marital problems, sexual issues, and the list goes on. So Rabbi Jacobson, how many more suicides will it take to shake up, shake us up and make a change? My guess, no change to our system will ever happen. But if I may make a suggestion, the roots of the problem won't change, but let's at least be more proactive about taking care of the symptoms and diseases. There needs to be a mental health organization geared specifically for Lubavitchers. Baruch Hashem, there's more wealthy Lubavitchers than ever, and this can easily be subsidized by our own. They will be ecstatic to support this. In that organization, there can be a subdivision geared towards Shluchim's kids, especially those that left home at an early age. This is a must. Thank you for starting this podcast and creating a platform to educate and help us. If I may request, can you please indicate in the description of the episode that you'll be addressing this topic so I can find your response. Thank you. Now, I've had other requests, written requests to speak about this. I also had a heart-wrenching phone call from an anonymous young woman who says she knew these girls, same age, same situation, and herself is uh, at risk, as she put it. And she says it's really pekuach nefesh in the deepest form of the way. It was a cry for help. So, on a platform Chassidus applied, my life Chassidus applied, a real issue like this cannot be ignored. And that's why I'm addressing it. That's not the first time I've spoken about it, even though I don't like to refer and say, okay, you know, I've spoken about it here, go to this and this number program. It's a little insensitive. So I'm not going to do that right now, even though I will give some reference simply because it's on the record and I have spoken about it. So let me just share a few words on this topic. Of course, this girl that called me, I try to give her as much encouragement, hope, and try to give her, get her involved in something. Exactly right. I mean, suicide, of course, is horrendous. On the family, I mean, I can't even imagine. I don't even know what to say. So, of course, the first thing is to extend our consolations, comforting any way that each of us can help just give people a little strength, a little hold their hand, a little support, encouragement, whatever it takes. But in the broader picture, the question which bothers us all, unfortunately, the bother sometimes just dissipates as time passes, is what's going on? Of course, we need short-term solutions, hotlines, organizations, people who are care and ready to speak to young men and women just to show them that someone cares. That's a big one. Show them that someone cares. But we also have to look at the longer term. Preemptive. It's simply unacceptable to have young people walking around empty and feeling unwanted or feeling unfulfilled or feeling bored. Now you'll say, boredom? Okay, so everyone's... No. It's a vacuum. It's the beginning I'm not suggesting everyone bored is going to become suicidal, God forbid. Absolutely not. But why do we even leave a vacuum? Why do we leave nature abhors a vacuum, human nature abhors boredom just to do nothing? Because then you're looking for things and not always going to be healthy. And they're not always going to be destructive completely, but they can be semi-destructive on different levels, different addictions, different involvements. So yes, it is a crisis. We don't have to panic in hysteria. But we have to be a sense of urgency, a sense of compelling need to do something, to give our children activities that excite them. 
Yeah, we know this yeshiva system has a structure, and no one's suggesting changing that. Obviously, you can add and infuse it with vitality and passion and relevance. Absolutely. But not every student is always capable of sitting all day and studying on a, on a bench or a seat. Some may need creative outlets. Some may need extracurricular activities. Some may need different ways of doing things. So parents and educators need to put their heads together to create even more than we've created. And I'm not suggesting, I'm not coming in as some savior that's saying, here's ideas you've never thought of. And my point, really, goal is just to bring it to everybody's attention as much as possible. I use this platform and the following, thank God, that reaches quite wide to talk about it. The real goal is we should all put our heads together. I'm just throwing out some ideas, not just just talk and, and, and lift up my hands and, and say, oy vey, what are we going to do? That there, we must do this. This has to become a collective and an individual effort. It doesn't, we don't have to wait till it hits close to home, God forbid. We're all one family. And frankly, this isn't just for Lubavitchers. This is for all people. Obviously, you begin at home where you are close to your community. But the goal would be to reach everyone. And there are organizations that have arisen to address this. We have to work with them and not try to recreate the wheel and see what's needed, what's missing. There should be a hotline that anyone can call anonymously. And people are ready to volunteer simply to take someone out to dinner or just speak with them, or go to a game, or whatever it takes to get somebody a little stimulated. And if you see something, you see someone, it's your own child or another child, that something seems off, that the child seems depressed. We are not allowed to stand by the side and just ignore it and be apathetic. Obviously it has to be addressed with sensitivity. Everyone has family. You can't just suddenly adopt a child without proper proper discussion with parents. I don't mean adopt physically. I mean in a more psychological sense of the word. But the care. So I'm putting it on the table for all of us. I made some quick suggestions, by no means exhausted. Most importantly, I want to say this to the people who wrote to me or reached out to me. I'm not going to ignore this. I will bring it up. You should know you have a sympathetic ear in myself and anyone I can reach. And never forget that. And know there are people who care and people who love you unconditionally. You're a child of God's. Hashem loves you, puts you on this world, in this earth, with a purpose, a unique purpose that you and only you can accomplish. And myself included, and every one of us, will be dedicated to help you fulfill that mission and purpose. And that's not a small matter, because all of existence is hanging in the balance. Because if you don't do what you have to do, all of us are not complete. In the words of the Rebbe, Shivim Shana, 70 years that we're honoring now, that yes, you, you have a shlichus, a particular mission to fulfill in finishing the job and bringing the Mashiach and the Gu'ulah. We have to join together to address this all, this crisis, again, in a way that is a balanced way, not talking about hysteria and panic, but not one that's either complacent and just to be Yetzir, just to do it because, uh, just to show that we're doing something. If anyone has thoughts and suggestions, please submit them to me. I'll be happy to share them. If you want me to re- read something or, re- or you have something that I'd like to, or like to share with me that I can present to everybody and welcome them in some way, please do so as well. I'm a partner in anyone wanting to address such a critical issue because this is our nefoshes. These are the souls, the neshamas. The Shamas of our youth, this is the future. 
These are the people who will march us and all of us into the Gula Hamitis Vashlema. So going forward, may we never know from any such tragedies again. But also going forward, we need to know what we have to do and should do and must do to prevent anything of this nature, short-term and long-term. Okay. I did speak about this topic, as I said, I would refer to simply not because I'm trying to be technical, but because there's more information there. Episodes 213 through 215. It was a lot about our teenagers drowning. And episode 244 as well. And I hope never have to speak about it, not because I don't want, not because uh, I'm pushing it away, but because it never needs to speak about it because we'll have solved our issues. Okay. With that, let us go to the next topic. So the last few weeks we've been speaking a lot about secular wisdom, secular sciences, and Torah, and the balance. It all began with the Rambam, so if you're interested in this topic and you're listening for the first time, just go back to episodes. This is 293. I began in 1991 with the birthday of the, of the with the yard site, rather, the yard site of the Rambam, Chav Tevis, speaking about this topic. But there's still some issues that I have addressed over the years because this has been a re, re repeated uh, idea and questions that people ask about secular wisdom, secular teachings, Torah, and so on. So I'm going to do one or two more, and we'll continue as we go in the coming weeks because time limitations. Okay, so a little follow-up, first of all. Follow-up to the previous episodes. Secular studies and how to gain parnasa without learning secular studies and also without going on shlichus. So this person's writing about that, saying, thank you so much for your amazing presentations every week. Question number one that I have. In this week's episode, this last week's episode, 292, while discussing the idea of secular studies, you mentioned that the main idea the Rebbe wanted to bring out was, with his, speak, with his speaking about secular studies, was to negate the idea of tachlis, i.e. that you need a career to succeed. I was always under the impression that it wasn't just a philosophical idea, but rather that in practice there should be only Lamud Kedish, only Hebrew studies, Jewish studies, in Chabad schools, not even English and math. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. I focused on that primary thing because that was a big driving element that the Rebbe spoke about. Because remember, in the Torah, in Chazal, you find scholars, Tanoim and Amaroim, who were masters in mathematics, in physics, in cosmology, in astronomy, laws of Hilchos Kiddush, Achedish, and Erevin, and so on. And there were those that actually involved and to have dialogues with different scientists and thinkers. So there's nothing per se about chokhmah, chokhmah b'goyim tamin. There is a wisdom with which God created the world. We spoke about that's not the purpose of existence. That you find in the Torah. But there's a wisdom, there's a science, there's a, the anatomy of, whether it's anatomy or biology or chemistry or dermatology or ecology. It can go on from A to Z to zoology. So there's a science to it. The question is when it's balanced and you understand that it's part of the picture of how God created the world. And it's complemented by knowing why he created it. It's one thing. But when there's an imbalance and the suddenly focus, we're only going to focus on the tool chest, on the science and forget about the God. 
That was a major thing that the Rebbe wanted to address. In addition, because we do live in a society where science is worshipped, sometimes worshipped almost like a religion, if not more, that the Rebbe was talking about that, and of course, bringing from Tanya, Metames, Chabad, Shabbat, especially philosophies and so on. So of course there's more to it, and I discussed it in many earlier episodes which I referred to, I'm not going to go refer to them again. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, riding a bicycle or driving a car, or knowing how to add 2 plus 2 is 4, or balancing your account, is that secular studies? Penmanship, how to write a letter, how to sign a letter. We all do it one way or another. But we don't worship it. It's not an end in itself. It's a tool. It's like learning how to use a screwdriver or a hammer. Not to dismiss the chokhmah of it, the wisdom of it, but not to worship it. How much to study? Yes, in a, in a holy environment that ever wanted as much surrounding children, especially in impressionable years, with as much gudusha as possible. But it's inevitable. Even Gemara you can't understand with certain math, without certain mathematical principles. The Rebbe was careful that it shouldn't become an end in itself. I've always maintained that I never felt that the Rebbe was saying that children should not be taught maybe uh, outside of school or with their parents or home taught certain basic skills. We're not talking about the philosophies of a secular world or, or um, apostat, ap- thoughts of atheists or agnostics, uh, her- her- heresy. We're talking about skills and trades and so on. Question number two. What is the Parnosa solution for one who wants to abide by the principle of not learning secular studies and doesn't feel like he can be a shliach or mechanach, an educator, as you mentioned in this, week's, in this past week's episode? Thank you again, and I hope to learn from you concerning these issues. So this, again, we've spoken about a number of times. I'll just be brief because it's a topic, obviously, that's still relevant and affects everybody. Obviously, being a shliach, a mechanach, in, the, in working in... Uh, in, in um, the areas Altaras HaKedosh, which means areas that are connected to Gdusha, to Teira, to teaching, education, or Shlichus, and so on, clay Kedosh, as we call it, that's optimal. But that doesn't mean we have many, many Yiddish Shemayim, and whatever their Shlichus is, and sometimes even the Rebbe pushed them in that direction, everything has to always be done toward the divine, even if you're uh, working in something that is not directly clay Kedosh. A Balesik, in business, and finance, a merchant, a dealer, a trader, a retailer, a wholesaler. I mean, it goes on and on. People in computers, people in different areas of, of, of the business world. That too has guidelines. The trader has a lot of guidelines for that. How one masters that, to be honest, I've heard so many different stories. I hear people who made a lot, a lot of money, and they'll tell you they never went to any school. They just had good instincts, good common sense. They're good with people. And mazel. Others, yes, some people went to learn computer training, others different trades. So I don't know if there's a black and white answer to this question because you've seen both. You've seen people majorly successful without any of, of any secular studies at all. You have others with secular studies that are not that successful. Does it up your chances? Look, there are many people who did not go to secular education. Now that they're in business, they may go to a workshop, they may go hear a talk, they may go to a seminar, they may go to continued education. Then you're talking about people who already have families, who have a center in their lives. It's a whole different story, and the Rebbe made that very clear. And it's directly connected to Parnosa. The Alta Rebbe says, if it's the Parnosa, it's a whole different story. It's a particular goal. But to say I'm going to study, and maybe it's going to help Parnosa, that's another story. Again, it's case by case, and it's hard to make one black and white rule. And those that do, 
often make mistakes and they're not necessarily doing justice to the Rebbe's nuances and all the other areas that are not always so black and white. Okay. Another follow-up was we spoke about science and Torah. The question was, why is science not Torah? It's also from God. We're talking about the wisdom of God, the divine wisdom in creation, not humans as human wisdom. So follow-up. You mentioned that science isn't Torah because it isn't direct instruction to elaborate, which means Torah is when you want to know what God wants you to do. He wants you to wake up in the morning and daven. Or let's take Mitzvah Sesa Daraisa or the Rabban, whatever it may be. The Talyag Mitzvah, it tells you what he wants you to do. The spirit of Allah. Even if Moidaani is not a Mitzvah Sesa Daraisa, but it's the spirit. Kashrus. Obviously, things like Avis Yisro, the Ten Commandments. I mean, I'm not going to just randomly choose anything. That's direction, God, is that's what I want you to do. This is how you will be the healthiest possible person. And this is what you should avoid doing because by doing it, you become destructive to yourself and to others. That's Teda. Science doesn't make such statements. Science will tell you facts. It will tell you data. Here is what makes something tick. This is what makes the clock tick. This is what makes the planets move. These are the subatomic particles that shape atoms, that in turn shape molecules, that in turn shape elements. If you manipulate certain energies, you can create technologies. It doesn't tell you this is what you should do morally or ethically. So one is direct link, a direct track of reflection of what God wants you to be. The other are tools, as I said before, means that help you build a nice home. And then you use the home, l'shem shemayim. Kol masecha, l'shem shemayim, b'chol You can study the Adam and learn about God's unity, as the Rebbe explains in the letter as well as other things, everything actually. Everything is a lesson in life. But it's a lesson too. The thing itself is a means. You have a table. The table is a means to eat, uh, eat it in a kosher meal, learn Torah on it. There's a shulchan for people to come together and do something kedusha. The dynamics of the table itself, that's science, understanding the table. So science does not have that direct thing. So this is the question now asked. However, there's a lots of discussion in the Torah that is not instruction. Even parts that discuss how among the world is like the first new fruit program of the Rambam, which he brings to appreciate the godless of Hashem. Surely that is, that is Teir. Why isn't learning about the greatness of the world Teir? Because you want to understand the greatness of Hashem. So I, I, let me break the question into two parts. It's asking the question that not everything in Teir is a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah. As a matter of fact, Rashi addresses that, that it should have started with Achedosh HaZelachem which is the first mitzvah. Chapter after chapter, the narrative, the stories in Bereshis and in Noyach and in Lech Lech and Vayera. Here and there you have a mitzvah. You have the mitzvah, Gid Nosha is one of the mitzvahs that brought in Sefer Bereshis. Bris Milah. But most is not. And even later in Shmois, a lot of it is narrative. And then there's halachas. However, because it's Teda, everything's Melosh and Heira. Not just like uh, the Baal says, everything we see in here is a lesson. This table teaches us something. Teda, every letter in Teda is Dvar Hashem. And therefore, every letter in Teda has lessons. Sometimes it's a mitzvah, sometimes in the form of a lesson. But everything has a lesson. That's number one. The other way around is the second half of the question. And what about in Teda when you, when you have things like talk about Galash Hashem, like you have, he brings to the first four chapters of the Rambam. Or we talk about Galash Hateva. You know, you talk about Marabu Masech. There are parts in Teda that talk about that. 
And you go further in Gemara, you find a lot of that. Why isn't that? So the answer to that, why is that, why is that not Tate? It is Tate. If it's brought in Tate directly, and I, I cited the letter of the Rebbe, the different levels, there are things in Tate that talk, that I won't say called scientific, but they talk about a natural element. So then it is, you make Birchus HaTeda on it. That's a combination. You could say that's an interface, a mamutza. It's Teda, and also talks about something of the world. But then there's things that humans discovered through their own efforts. And that's the difference between the two. So when the Rambam says that, yes, Kate said, Yovi, how do you come to love and awe of God? By being contemplating on the greatness of nature. Now, if it says it in a Pasuk, like when the Rebbe spoke about not looking at animals or not having animals that were not pure, he said, of course, if it's an animal that's written about in the Teda, then it's Teda. You're learning Teda. So when you go outside and you look at the sun and the moon and you look at the meadows and you look at the fields and you look at the awesomeness of nature, that's, that is the world and you're finding the godliness in it. If you're learning it in a Posuk or in a Chazal or in a Rambam, then it's part of Teda. It's not a contradiction. That's the short answer of it. Okay. I see time is running. The clock ticks. So let me do one more. Um, you know what? I want to do more follow-up. We're going to do the Chassidus question. Okay. As you see, I'm trying to fit in as much as possible, so we cover as much as possible, but you can't always do it that way. So here's the Chassidus question. A very good Chassidus question. It's really a question in the Parsha. But since it's, uh, Chassidus talks about it, I decided we'll pull part of the Chassidus question. So in this week's Parshas, we're now going to Parsha Boy. And I didn't mention that in the beginning, but now I'll mention it because Boy, it's also Rishchei Shvat tonight. So Rishchei Shvat we covered because it's the beginning of the month of Shvat, especially Yud Shvat for us. Siri B'Shvat. So Parsha Boy is, of course, a Parsha that first half of it is the darkest, darkest exile in Egypt, the last Makkis, the last three Makkis, and, and the second half is the day in the 15th of Nisan when the Eden marched out of Mitzrayim on their way toward Har Sinai. So it's, a, it's an interesting Aparsha that it could have ended it at the end of Golos, the start Gol, and now it comes together. As the Rebbe explains, because Golas and Gula are two sides of one coin. The Golas' purpose is Gula. That's why the Ramban, Nachmanides, calls this entire Sefer. Even though the first two and a half chapters is about a deep exile, a dark abyss, he calls the whole Sefer Sefer Gula. The Elish Meis B'nei Yisrael. These are the names which they entered into Golas, and these are the names from which they came out of Golas into Gula. Okay, that's a general thing. So in, the, in, these episodes, in this narrative, what do we find? We find, of course, the confrontation of Moshe with Pari. And Maka after Maka, ten plagues, where Pari refuses to let the Jews go. So one plague, and then a harsher plague, and a harsher plague, and it goes on and on. We find an interesting expression, and this is the question. Hardening of Pari's heart. By Yichbad Leif Pari, the Ebrus says, he hardened Pari's heart. We keep reading in the Pasha that Pari wanted to let the Jews go, but God hardened his heart. And therefore he refused. Is that fair? Why would Pari be punished if he really wanted to let go, but God took away his free choice? Excellent question. So the Medrash actually asked the question. Medrash Rabbah, Shmei Rabbah, 
Yud Gimel Gimel 13.3, ask the question. And as it says, it gives food to those skeptics who say, what kind of judgment is that? What kind of free will? If people have free will, God is taking away free will. So there's a number of answers given to this. The Ramban on Zion Gimel, last week's chapter, Zion Gimel 7.3, says this is a known question. The Ramban cites these Medrashim and basically cites two different answers. They have overlap, but they're two answers. He calls them both true answers. The first answer is given is that you don't take away free will. But Pari had shown and demonstrated that he refused after one plague or another, he refused five times to do what Pari, what Moshe said in the name of God, despite the plagues. That's why you don't find by the first five plagues, you don't find any place that God hardened his heart. His own heart was hardened. He hardened his heart, even though he was punished. So the Medrash says there comes a point where you know, you've already basically written your own script. It was very clear. So God's hardening his heart was a punishment for what he had brought upon himself. So had he been conciliatory in the first five plagues, okay, but the second five plagues, you start seeing God's expression. So the hardening of the heart is actually a punishment. A punishment, yes, that at this point, we're taking away your free will. That's the punishment for what you refused, refused time after, with all the chances you were given. It's still not a complete answer, obviously, because you say, one second, person, there's always hope. But there is an expression, Abol Atayim Atayim say person who comes to be purified, he's pure. If he's given the power to purify, a person who shows the opposite, defiance, he's also given food for his defiance. Somewhat in that nature. A second medrash says, in the Ramban sites, a second medrash says, no, it was not a punishment, it was an order to punish. Seeing how depraved and seeing how defiant Pari was, God hardened his heart in order to punish him with more plagues. Actually, the verse says, in one of the verses it says, God hardened his heart in order to show miracles. Miracles can be both the miracles of the plagues, other miracles, but it came to show. So one is the punishment itself, and the other is that it came to, is in order to punish him. But what do you learn from this? What do you learn from this? Not that there's no free will. You learn from this that, psychologically speaking, a person controls their destiny, and they have the right to be able to choose and even repent. But there are times we so become so consumed with our own egos and our own self-interest that we don't want to hear. And it's very possible, yes, a plague may have caused Pari to regret, but then he would have regretted anyway. You see, even after the Makas Bechiris, what happened? With all, and he finally said, chasing the Jews out of Mitzvah, he still pursued them. God knew exactly what was in his heart. His heart had not repented. With God hardening his heart, was revealing what he really is. He's a person who will not learn. Also, when you go into Chassidus, you see it's not so simple, God hardening his heart. It's cause and effect. There's no punishment. Punishment is cause and effect. When you become so corrupt and so evil and so genocidal and inhumane, yes, you become contaminated. Can you do? Everyone can do. But there comes a point where you've contaminated so much, you've killed enough people. That yes, if Hitler was caught, no one would say maybe he still has regrets. He did too much damage. And that means hardening is like a cause and effect, an effect of your own behavior. So whether it's the first interpretation that that itself, that's the, pun- that, that, that's the punishment, the hardening, or it's the lead to punishment, 
which have overlap, that's the deeper understanding of it. And it fits perfectly. That's what human beings can do. We could destroy our spirits. This doesn't mean the soul always lives on, but not in this form or shape. Now, there are other, other explanations as well. Some discuss it as hardening. Is, not, is it from the word heavy heart? Not necessarily hardening. There's the Pirushim of the Abiyas of Alba and Ikrim. There's Abiyas of Arama and the Kedis Yitzchak. There are other explanations as well. Some describe it more the personality. God was revealing his personality. But regardless, the answer is that it's not a contradiction to free will and so on, as I just explained. There was a follow-up question to that as well. Why did God punish the Egyptians and also punish the Jews in the desert? Why did he have to punish the Egyptians to force them to release the Jews? Why couldn't he use, posit- use positive reinforcement? The same can be asked about many of the punishments of the Jews in the desert. Yes, positive reinforcement is always the first way to go, but there comes a point where you see clearly. Pari was a not exactly going to respond to therapy or to positive reinforcement, as powerful as it is. It's a man that was out. He made a very big conspiracy and plot. Literally, I use Hitler because it's a contemporary example. And it wasn't about, oh, let's, let's appease him. Let's maybe discuss his mother, his father. It was very clear what his intentions were. And you have to know when positive enforcement works, reinforcement, when it's not. And appeasing, as Churchill said, appeasing an enemy like that is feeding the crocodiles in the hope that you'll be eaten last, as we've seen, unfortunately. So again, punishment is about cause and effect in every case, case by case. Okay. With that, let us go to the essays. So we have three essays. This is still from last year's contest. And I've always find it intriguing and stimulating to read these essays. The first one in Hebrew. That's how it is. It's not an answer. When people say, what is that? That's how it is. Mayor Heber, age 20, Kfar Chabad, Israel, student in Yeshiva Gdela, Timchit Mimi, Mekiryat Gat. says the nature of a person he begins is that everything he's asked or he's requested to do, he's always looking for an explanation or excuse. Why he's not doing this, he blames on this one and blames on that one. And then there ends up being a life that is essentially filled with excuses. And he goes on to say, and this essay is going to address that tendency, that human tendency, based on chassidus based on our potential, our capacity, and how we do ourselves at injustice when we are constantly looking for excuses, and talking about the gvul and bleakvul balance of a human being's potential and fulfilling what God wants of him. A very, very strong essay. I found that to be very powerful in really inspiring and stimulating another side to us that doesn't succumb to excuses and procrastination and all that humans can unfortunately uh, um, succumb to. The second essay is Teenage Rebellion, Chaya Youngsworth, age 16, Johannesburg, South Africa, student at the Torah Academy, Girls High School. Many young people struggle internally, she writes. They look at themselves and wonder, who am I? I've changed over the years, both in appearance and personality, but what stays the same? What is my essence? By looking internally, this can also enhance the question. Sometimes it can feel like one is two-faced and sometimes contradictory. Am I good or bad? Do I believe in God or not? These tug, these questions tug at human consciousness. Goes on to say, especially by teenagers, this questioning has a very strong impact. We will address this issue by looking to the spiritual makeup of a person according to Chassidus. Through this, we'll be able to understand why a person could have a hard time figuring out who they are. We will also discover 
able to understand why a person could have a hard time figuring out yes. We'll also discover the source of teenage rebellion and how one can not only overcome it, but also use it for good. It goes on to discuss this, the animal soul, the divine soul, how they battle with each other, and how we can apply it, especially to teenage challenges. Well done, especially a topic which, of course, addresses something I spoke about earlier, challenges of teenagers today. And finally, the next essay is Perpetuating Inspiration, Shmuley Hecht, age 18, Sunnyville, Sunnyvale, California, student at Yeshiva's Lubavitch, Toronto. The previous Lubavitch Rebbe once shared with his chassidim, one must serve God with his own efforts. A person can reach greater heights in his service when, he's, when he is led by, by the hand from above, it is more pre- but it is more precious, though, when one puts in the labor to walk on his own. goes on to discuss inspiration. Inspiration, motivation, and how one has to find ways to initiate and inspire themselves from the bottom up. Very, very apropos to the theme of Basilegani, the Rebbe's theme about self, our effort, self-initiative, the arousal from below, and describes it in very beautiful terms with a good parable. Another excellent essay. Always impressed, very impressed. And with that, we conclude the essays. And with that, we conclude this episode 293 of My Life, Chassidus Applied. As I said, look forward. Yitzvah is coming. And we have to do whatever counts. 70 years doesn't happen every day. So we have to look for this type of special time, auspicious time as a springboard for great things. So we'll be announcing some uh, programs to come, and especially next week. So everyone have a very good chedesh, a blessed chedesh, a chedesh of iskashus, of connection, reconnecting to the divine mission, to the mission that the Rebbe charged us with the mission that the Rebbe was charged with in this seventh generation, leading us to how to infuse existence with the divine in every possible way, and not in any type of abstract way, but in practical terms, and bring the Shekhinah to earth, to the Gula Amitiz Vahashlema. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. As I said, everyone have a blessed Chedesh, and we'll see each other next week in the week of Yud Be well. This program is brought to you by My Life. Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.